1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, can biography tell the whole truth? The 18th century Scottish writer James Boswell will always be remembered for penning the best-known biography in the English language. The life of Samuel Johnson about the famed diarist was an instant success and it carries on captivating readers around the world today. Boswell diligently followed Johnson for years, noting down his every movement, his meals and his bon mots. The pair grew to become great friends. So close was their partnership, their names have been intertwined ever since. But how to balance closeness to a subject and too much intimacy is a conundrum still faced by modern-day biographers and a familiar one for my guest today. Walter Isaacson is a prolific chronicler of some of the most significant figures in recent global history and science. His work includes the best-selling account of the Apple founder Steve Jobs and another tome on Henry Kissinger, which earned him a Pulitzer nomination. His latest book is The Codebreaker, and it follows the story of Dr. Jennifer Doudna, the Nobel Prize-winning biochemist, and her work on genome editing. As well as documenting the lives of others, Isaacson's had a long and eventful career as a wordsmith himself. Born in New Orleans, he's a former editor of Time magazine and chairman of CNN. Now he's professor of history at Tulane University in his birthplace of Louisiana. Isaacson says the best profiles are open and honest. But for a writer known as the Insider's Insider... How does a biographer capture the truth behind great lives, warts and all? Walter Isaacson, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
1: Now, your many previous books have focused on the lives of household names. I would say kind of high-ranking household names, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, to name just a couple of them. Why did you decide that you now wanted to write about Jennifer Doudna? She's a biochemist, great achievements to her name, but not a name I think a lot of people will have heard of.
0: Well, that's right, although it helped that she won the Nobel Prize just when I was finishing the book. But I think when you look at Leonardo, you get the scientific revolution. I wrote about Ben Franklin and the Enlightenment, Albert Einstein, the physics revolution which was the first half of the 20th century. And then Steve Jobs as part of the digital revolution, which defined the age that you and I grew up in, the last half of the 20th, 20th century. I think our current era, the first half of the 21st century, will be about the life sciences. It'll be about molecules being the new microchips. And I wanted to find somebody who understood and pushed forward the notion of genetic editing and using RNA and DNA to help shape our destiny. And that, of course, played into the COVID crisis when RNA became uh, part of how we invented vaccines.
1: In your epilogue to Codebreaker, you write that You, too, wanted to be a biochemist when you were younger. And I wondered whether writing this book was the next best thing.
0: Well, when Jennifer Doudna, my subject, was in middle school, her father gave her a copy of The Double Helix. Uh, And you remember that first edition with the pale red cover? Well, my dad had given me that when I was in middle school. And I went back and I found it. And so all the marginal notes I made and realized how fascinated I had been by biochemistry, a word I'd never heard of until I read that book. And so this was an opportunity for me to go back and explore this magic and mystery of nature, which is how does life work? And to me, that's always a joy of writing or reading a book is that you get to have a journey of discovery. And that's what it was for me.
1: Gene editing is clearly a subject of the era, fascinating, adventurous, innovative, and also some moral complexities, of course, go with it. We can't get much further without introducing uh, the acronym CRISPR. And for some of our listeners, I think particularly if they're listening to our sister podcast, Babbage on the Sciences, they'll say, "Yeah, sure, I know all about that. But others might not be so familiar. So why don't you explain CRISPR so I don't have to?
0: CRISPR is simply a tool that allows us to edit our own DNA. Now, it's based on something bacteria have been using for a billion years. When they get attacked by viruses, they take a little mugshot of that virus and they put them into these clustered, repeated, regularly interspaced, palindropic, repeated sequences known as CRISPRs. And that was an acronym that was made up by a Spanish scientist because he loved the name CRISPR. But it refers to this system that bacteria use. And what Jennifer Doudna and her team did is they re-engineered it so that they could say, let's use it to target any space in our own genetic code that we want to edit. It's already been used in this past year to cure sickle cell anemia. Uh, which is just a single gene mutation, and CRISPR has been used to fix the gene so that people don't have sickle cell. It's also been used to cure blood diseases already. It's being used in cancer treatments at the University of Pennsylvania and in China. It's already in clinical trials to cure congenital blindness.
1: A lot of the body of the work, and indeed your work are on Jennifer Doudna's work was done before the pandemic. The book's published this year. What's the particular significance, would you say, of this story now in, in 2021? I think that
0: this story helps us understand why it's so important to figure out, what happens in life, what happens in our own body. Because RNA, which is the less famous of the molecules, its cousin DNA gets all the cover stories in the magazines. But RNA, which was Jennifer Doudna's specialty, turns out to be a guide you can use to edit our own genes. But as we found out in this past year, it can be a messenger to tell our cells to build a particular type of protein. And so we're now using it to build a fragment of that spike protein that's on the coronavirus. So it's at the heart of the Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna uh, vaccines. And I think it plays into this whole notion that we're entering into a new era of the life sciences, biotechnology, and genetic-based medicine and treatments.
1: I noticed a review of your book uh, that said science had outgrown biography as a, as a medium. Um, I wondered if you agreed with that and also made the point that your subject could have been CRISPR itself, uh, not, uh, not the person who'd, who'd sort of uh, come up with it or done the research. Is it a fair comment that we choose people to be narrative drivers sometimes when we maybe could concentrate more on the science?
0: Well, there are wonderful books written about the science. But for me, it's always important to have people at the core to show what real human beings who, you know, work hard... How they're able to affect the arc of history and this book not only has jennifer dowden and emmanuel sharpenjay the two people who won the nobel prize for discovering how to use CRISPR to edit cells it also has all the other researchers and the collaborators in it and i think it's important for those of us who write history to say yes here's the technical science but also here's the human side these are real people who are making these advances.
1: Dr. Doudna and her research partner, Dr. Charpentier, were the first all-female science team to be honored with the Nobel Prize. You wrote uh, in the New York Times that the award is a great testament to the growing power of women in the life sciences. So have the big awards and honours missed a female cohort in the past or are we kind of in a way now looking around for for women to celebrate and perhaps that supply has simply not been there, which might be an interlinked but a different problem?
0: Well, beginning with Marie Curie, you've had great women scientists, and she won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry many years ago. But there have been headwinds that have uh, pushed back against women being successful in science. When Jennifer was in school, having read The Double Helix, she tells her school guidance counselor she wants to become a scientist, and he says, girls don't do science. And so it's been a while that women have been written out of the history of science and technology and faced headwinds. Uh, Your sister podcast is called Babbage. I wrote about Ada Lovelace, who was Charles Babbage's partner in figuring out how to use the analytical machine to be what we now call a modern computer. So I've looked for people who've been written out of the history, partly because I think we need to inspire all people, people of different genders, different races, to say, yes, I can do science.
1: It should be called Babbage and Lovelace, but that to me sounds like a, it sounds like a rather old-fashioned department stored. <laughs>
0: I think it should be called Lovelace and Babbage, but uh, that's up to you all.
1: <laughs> Very fair challenge. You've written the biographies uh, of great men, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Steve Jobs. The Codebreaker is the first book you've written about a woman. Why is it the first time you've had a female subject at the core of your books?
0: An earlier book I did used Ada Lovelace as a framing device, a book called The Innovators, which begins and ends with her. Uh, And in this time, I wanted to show how the life sciences has progressed. And Jennifer Doudna just ended up being a great central character. She cares about the science. She wins a Nobel Prize. She turns her attention to COVID. She turns her attention to the moral issues. And it was an added benefit in a way that it was the first time I got to write about a woman.
1: Famously, you immerse yourself in the lives of your subjects. Steve Jobs invited you to live in his guest house for a number of months. (laughs) He obviously worked out you were going to get close to him one way or the other. You might as well be there. But getting in with someone is one thing. Getting them to show you their true self is often another. And I wondered how you go about that balance and where do you think that balance lies between getting that intimacy with a subject and maybe overfamiliarity or chumminess?
0: I think you have to spend a lot of time with a subject to truly get to know her or him. You peel back the layers of the onion. And for me, it was easier with Jennifer Doudna, but she's a very open and friendly person. So I spent a lot of time in Berkeley with her and her family and going to restaurants, but mainly spending time in her lab with her, because I don't think she has a whole lot of rough edges or dark side to her. I didn't worry so much about, you know, maybe I'm getting too chummy. It was more difficult when I was writing about Steve Jobs, who, I got to spend a lot of time with. I got to know very well, got to sit by his bed when he was ailing, but also knew that he had a side that was kind of rough and had to make sure that I gave the whole picture there.
1: Well that that's really what I wonder about. The relationship is a difficult one, isn't it? And I speak of someone who's co authored a memoir with a you know, with a senior intelligence figure from the Eastern Bloc and I remember at the time thinking when I was invited to stay at this man's dacha, it was Markus Wolf, the famous uh, former head of East German intelligence. That I, I did worry a bit about it. I did worry about crossing that line. And when you're in a guest in someone's environment, neutralizing to an extent the way that you would go about writing about them or being critical. Do you feel that at all?
0: Yeah, I do feel that as a biographer, I tend to empathize with my subjects and the more I get to know them, I hope, the more I get to understand them. But what I try to do is be very open and honest with the reader. If I'm in Steve Jobs' guest house or I'm sitting by his bed when he's telling me things, I describe the scene. I even put my own relationship in the scene so the reader can judge. And so my books tend to be pretty open about my own emotions and how they evolve towards the characters I write about. Because I think the main thing you can do is be open and honest and conversational and chatty and intimate with your reader, not just with your subjects.
1: Your biography of Henry Kissinger had a more critical slant, perhaps, so much so that it was sort of noted at, at the time that if he expected the book to be a hymn of praise, he must be desperately disappointed. That was the, the description of, of one commentator on it. Did you find that that was something that evolved as you dealt with Henry Kissinger, by the way, has just been on this show not very long ago, and um, I would encourage people to have a another listen to and come to their own view. But did your view change as you dealt with this big titan figure, but also a controversial one in foreign and security policy.
0: Well, my views of him were complex because, as you probably uh, heard when you did your podcast with him, he has a brilliant analytical mind. And he helped create an American foreign policy with a triangular balance with Russia, China, and the United States that brought us into the post-Vietnam era, and I think was a great strategic vision. On the other hand, His foreign policy was so realistic or real politique that he didn't have the moral or values components that we in the United States usually like to think is part of our foreign policy. So I tried to show all of that in the book. And indeed, he was upset at certain parts of it. I think if he reread his own memoirs, he'd say, that understates my accomplishments. If he reread his own Nobel Prize citation, he'd probably be outraged that it wasn't favorable enough. Uh, But I think my book was very fair and down the middle about him. And when one of my editors said that to him, uh, Henry Kissinger, who has a great sense of humor, said, what right does that young man have to be fair and down the middle about a great man like me? So uh, I, I think he's reconciled to the book, but I can only do what I think is absolutely fair. And I've done that in all of my books.
1: I wonder if there's a little bit of a, a double standard. I certainly don't only uh, mean in your work, Mr. Isaacson, which is that big figures, if they're in oh, I mean, in science, in technology, warts and all seem to kind of get away with quite a lot. And if they're in politics or in foreign policy, like Kissinger's or uh, either side of the, uh, the aisle, biographers are often kind of looking for their, their weaker side. Do you think we're kind of tougher... On the political class than we are on other great men and women.
0: That's a good question, and I've been thinking through. But clearly, political leaders kind of work for us. I mean, we're we're, we're choosing them, and so I think we hold them to be more accountable. But if I were to write about St. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or others like that. I think we would have to hold them accountable for what their technology wrought.
1: Yes, that, that's true. But I think, I mean, I'm, might, I'm, might just riffing here. I get the impression that there is a, there is a sort of a desire because people. This is not to use progressive in a political sense. They, they like progress. They want to put their arms around it. Be aware of its, its dangers in in technology and science. But there is a sort of celebratory side to it. Have we entered a time when that is much harder, partly because of these very, very strong and often bitter divides in in politics? Could you, can you write a down-the-middle biography? Could you imagine a down-the-middle account as uh, as your publisher called it, of someone like, oh, Donald Trump?
0: (laughs) I think it'd be hard on Donald Trump because he polarizes people so much, but it is what I tried to do with Henry Kissinger. It's what I tried to do with Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I think we have entered into a polarized age, and that's a very good point that you make, so that biographies and books tend to either be hagiographies. Yeah, I mean, there are people who write about Donald Trump and many other people as if they, you know, walk on water, and there are people who write about Donald Trump as if he's the devil incarnate. To do a straight-down-the-middle biography of Donald Trump would probably be harder
1: has there ever been something you regretted writing about one of your subjects or indeed omitted writing?
0: Yeah. I mean, when I did the Steve Jobs book, it was always a balance. And I asked my wife to read it over and over again as I did the manuscripts, which was, all right, this shows a very dark or rough side of Steve Jobs. How important is it to the reader for me to tell that so they understand Steve Jobs and how hurtful? is it or unnecessary is it is it just being there to be provocative or enraging and things and so there are things i took out especially when steve jobs talked about certain members of his family certain close friends of his especially when jobs was sick he sometimes said things i don't think he really believed that would kind of mean about people and so over the course of the manuscript i weeded some of those out but I certainly think that if you read the Steve Jobs book, you get a full sense of his personality. But perhaps some of the things that could have been really painful to people, both my wife and I finally decided, you know what, that would be hurtful. There's no reason to put that one in.
1: It sounds to me like then you kind of interfered with the record quite a lot, for someone who wasn't going to be around. Uh, admittedly, as you say, you were you know, for very good reasons and you had a sort of moral calculation here as, as well as a, a biographer's one but it does I mean I, I just pause on that when you say I you know you sat there and decided consciously what to to take out and whether that gave you any pause for thought as well about the whole idea as a person saying well here it is for the record and maybe he did mean some of it and maybe he didn't. I think
0: we writers have to make moral judgments. We have to say what's good for the reader, what's necessary for the reader. And what are we doing simply to be sensationalistic? Or what are we doing that will be too hurtful or painful? Yeah, I think I could have written books um, that probably had more sensationalist things in there. But we're all human beings. And uh, there are people who write books that try to be more... Cutting and, you know, put in all the horrors and people have the right to buy those, but I have the right to balance my own moral sensibilities and my sense of empathy for people. If I felt that there was something that was necessary for a reader to understand why Steve Jobs did something. That goes in the book. And perhaps if there's only any regrets I have, maybe there are too many of those in the book where I, you know, I'm just painting a certain picture that was painful to some people who were in the book. But uh, I certainly don't regret leaving the ones out that I left out. And perhaps as I get older, I err a little bit on the side of empathy and kindness.
1: I can't help wondering if we turned the tables and someone was to do, write a biography of you what, would it, what might it be called?
0: Well, those of us who write about people in the arena, I don't think should fall prey to the conceit that we're also in the arena. We are kind of the observers of the people who do things. So I don't know that there would be a biography of me that would be particularly interesting.
1: You're a proud son of New Orleans, the man of the South, and the, the legacy of the Confederacy and the history of the South has been revisited a lot across the past year and will be, I think, still more. So I wonder, as you watch these often fierce debates unfold in America about the legacy of civil war, of racism, and the South and its relationship with the rest of America, are there aspects that we need to revisit and indeed figures that we might well look at again? And who would you choose Oh,
0: absolutely. And that's a wonderful thing about history is that we're always revisiting it. And it's a great thing about the current period where there's so much debate over monuments in history. It makes people focus on why do we put up monuments? Uh, you know, what are we looking at? How do we define our history? When I looked at some history textbooks from down here and they talk about, you know, the Plantation South as a Time where the you know wonderful plantation mistresses uh, took care of the slaves on their plantation, well, those type of things have to be be revisited so that we give a fuller picture not only of the Civil War but all the way to the present. I was very much in the forefront and wrote about why I believed we needed to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee that was in one of the most prominent locations in the city of New Orleans. Robert E. Lee was put up in the uh, 1880s, I think, not because he came to New Orleans or lived in New Orleans. He had very little to do with New Orleans. His army of Northern Virginia never fought in New Orleans, but it was put up to send a signal that Reconstruction was over and whites were back in charge. And so after 100 or so years, it was time to take down that statue. And likewise, I think we had to take down all the Confederate monuments, and we did, because we should not be glorifying now people who were treasonous and fought against the United States. But I like the process of revisiting that history, and I have my students at Tulane University debate some of these things.
1: Tulane university you've just referenced uh, where you you now are uh, announced in order for students to return to campus they would need to have the vaccine now is it fair to stop unvaccinated students from attending universities and i'm thinking here of the the trade-off between obviously public health and that sort of safety but also that kind of tension around underserved groups and those who are vaccine hesitant and simply being told that they, they should stay away until they kind of fall in line or change their mind? What's your view?
0: Well, I think any organization, be it a restaurant, a university, an airline, has the right to say, we're serving under these rules. And The rules at Tulane are that you have to be vaccinated, or if you have a very valid excuse, you have to submit and show that valid excuse and be tested very regularly, three times a week. So everybody tries to work it out the way uh, that they think best and will come to a good solution. I certainly think that there's no underserved people who can't get the vaccine because Tulane just gives the vaccine for free. If people are vaccine hesitant, well, maybe they should go somewhere else. Or if they have a real reason to want to not take the vaccine, explain that reason, then be subject to being tested three, four times a week. But we're all feeling our way through this process. And I certainly think Tulane got it about exactly right.
1: You were president and CEO of the Aspen Institute from 2003 to 2018, a big name obviously in terms of of convening uh, power for leading thinkers from business and, and the, the arts and beyond. It was online this year because of the pandemic. I was interested in what you made of the future of networking and that kind of event, be it Aspen or, or Davos. Should they come back as they were or do we kind of Maybe except that for a lot of people, it really sort of become a bit of a byword for a liberal elite who kind of talks a lot, perhaps too much to itself.
0: I think there was a aspen davos uh, Bilderberg consensus that grew up in the late 1990s and into this century. That turned out to be very wrong, and you're right. It had an elite sensibility to it in which we believed, and I say we because I think I bought into that consensus, and now I think I was mistaken, but the economist itself was part of that consensus, which was free trade and free markets and immigration and free movements of people are an unalloyed good thing and they help the economy grow. And there was a lot of truth to that. But when I come back to Louisiana and I go to places like Kansas or Oklahoma and I see towns that have been hollowed out because the Maytag plant has been sent to Malaysia or someplace, I realize that a lot of people got left behind. By that Davos and Economist, if I may throw you into this, Anne, uh, consensus.
1: And possibly Aspen. I'm just, <laughs> I'm slightly what goes around comes around here, Walter.
0: <laughs> I think there was very much of a Davos, Aspen, Bilderberg, Economist magazine consensus that was well intentioned. It was okay, this is how we're going to grow a global economy. But that notion of globalism was good for people like us, people who go to Aspen or or Davos or people who read The Economist, but it left a whole lot of people behind. It caused a lot of resentment and we were sometimes clueless about that. And so uh, I certainly think that getting together at places and conferences will be fine in the future, but we ought to have a little bit more humility uh, about uh, our view of globalization and whether it's good for everybody.
1: If we could turn back to the biographer's art, but also there's there's no uh, profession without challenge to it, is there, in, uh, I suppose, in a Schumpeterian view of the biographer's art, is there a lot more so-called self-authored biographies, or we used to call them memoirs, but they now have ideas that they're self-authored biographies. You don't really need this biographer person in the way, I suppose, um Prince Harry is about to to start work with his ghostwriter and others have gone that route. Are they a kind of competitive threat to the art of the great biography?
0: Well, when I first started working with Steve Jobs, uh, you know, he could have written his own memoir or autobiography. But he said he'd much rather cooperate with me and not have any control over it because he said it would be something that would have more credibility for the ages. Jennifer Doudna wrote a book a few years ago, well before I started writing about her. And it was a very scientific-oriented book about her discoveries. But uh, I think she felt that an independent biography would add something to history. I love memoirs. I read memoirs all the time, but I make a distinction between memoirs and biographies.
1: I've saved my most difficult question, I think, for for last. And it's this. If you could invite only one of your subjects uh, to dinner at your favorite New Orleans hangout, which, (laughs) who would you choose? Well, which would you choose? The subject and the restaurant?
0: Well, clearly it would be Leonardo da Vinci because he was the person in history who most tried to know everything you could know about every subject that was knowable and saw the patterns that rippled across nature. And I would take him to Galatoire's, which is where I try to eat every Sunday night, which is my favorite restaurant in New Orleans, because it sort of has I guess, a coffee clubhouse vibe to it, the way that Ben Franklin would have been with Dr. Johnson in the right clubhouses in Soho and London. Uh, and so it sort of sparks a friendly but serious conversation.
1: Sounds fun. Can we crash? <laughs>
0: we can bring Ben Franklin, too, because as I just thought about it, he loved having dinners like with people like Dr. Johnson in London,
1: It's a date. Time travel is allowed on this show. Walter Isaacson, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: And it was great to be with you. Thank you.
1: And we'd love to know what you think. Does dinner with Da Vinci float your boat? Or would you rather hang out in a London coffee shop with Ben Franklin and Dr Johnson? Our Johnson Languages columnist knows where he'd rather be. Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. If this episode has wet your appetite for a biography, then I suggest you head to our website. There you can read our reviews of two new books about the extraordinary careers of the sports stars Lionel Messi and Roger Federer. While you're there, why not become a subscriber to The Economist? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McAlvoy, And in London, this is The Economist.